Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Blockchain Terminal, a new tool for the hedge fund industry and institutional investors to confidently buy, trade, and invest in crypto. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we have on a very special guest. We have on Ricardo Spani, Fluffy Pony of Monero, and he's going to tell us a little bit about Monero, Monero 101, Fluffy Pony 101, how he got into the project, and we meet a very special guest toward the end. We have on Papa Pony, his dad. He comes in and says a couple words for us. So enjoy this conversation with Fluffy Pony of Monero. But before that, please go to Crypto101podcast.com. That's Crypto101podcast.com. Go to the top, send us an email, say what's up. Join our Facebook group. Our Facebook group has 3,800 people waiting there just to help you out get into cryptocurrency. We have a little bit of a bull coming up. So a lot of people are going to be coming in this space. A lot of people are going to want to start investing. And a lot of people are going to have a lot of questions. This is a place for you. Also, go to iTunes rate us subscribe leave us a comment give us some stars it helps us a lot and we appreciate it become a patron the patrons are the backbone of crypto 101 and we thank you very much and also check out ico 101 by aaron paul where we review research and interview icos in the market so without further ado please welcome fluffy pony and we'll see you after the show Ricardo Spagni, Fluffy Pony of Monero. How are you doing, sir? I'm excellent, and how are you? Excellent. Thank you very much for asking. First, I want to say thank you very much for coming on Crypto 101. And today, you know, what we want to do as Crypto 101 is being the 101 entry level to getting to know people, coins, the space, ideas, ideologies. I just want to go and touch the basics, the tip of the icebergs of Monero. Who is Ricardo? Who is Fluffy Pony? A little bit of the history, where you come from, and then we go into a little bit about privacy coins, and we talk about some current events, maybe some forking, some of these other coins that came out of the fork, and and things like that. What do you think? Sounds good. Excellent. So first, I guess, who are you? How did this all start, and where did you get into crypto and the whole nine? Sure. So I worked as a developer for most of my life, and eventually got to a quite a senior position at a, a big corporate, yeah? and hated it, uh, did not enjoy corporate at all. It was too much red tape. It felt a little bit like we were bleeding our employees dry for you know every single little cent and every single cost saving and taking their ideas to make us money. And uh, left that and started a business with my wife. We started an import-export uh, business and uh, that ended up becoming quite successful, which gave me some free time. And uh, I discovered Bitcoin in early 2011. Right on. And did, right on. The, did the normal thing, you know, where it's like, oh, mining, I'm, I'm going to be a miner. I'm just going to make money out of thin air and I'm going to be rich. <laughs> um, and, and you very quickly learn that mining is is uh, even back then, even in, in 2011, it was like it was cutthroat. People had tools that they didn't release publicly. There was all sorts of underhanded dealings going on between miners, you know, like, oh, I've got a slightly faster tool than you do. You mm. can buy it from you for 100 Bitcoin or whatever. And, and nothing's really changed there. So I eventually sort of got off that bandwagon and decided it would be much better to build tools for miners, you know, sort of sell spades to miners. Smart. Yeah. Uh, you know, built some tools for miners and eventually came up with an open, flat packable rack, basically, for GPU miners. Okay. And that was 2013. And again, you know, like I initially built it. What do miners need? And 2013 was when, you know, we'd blown through like Butterfly Labs. We'd played around with like ASICs were, were now a thing with um, with Bitcoin, but pretty much everyone else was still GPU mining. So it was like, cool, let's take advantage of GPU mining and let's build these, these awesome tools for GPU miners. And that led to this company that I created called OpenRigs. And we sold these until there were better designs and other designs and cheaper designs. And we were knocked off by other competitors and that sort of thing, which was completely fine. You know, I mean, that's that's capitalism at its best. And early 2014, discovered an error because of my involvement with all coins. Right on. So I noticed that it's morning there and you're drinking something, coffee or tea? Coffee. Oh, good man. Black? 
A little bit of milk, you know, just take the edge off. Right on. So let's go a little bit more into into who Fluffy is. Is morning there? Where is there? Were you born there? What was your life like? What was your growing up like? So yeah, I was born in South Africa. I still live in South Africa. I love it here. I have dual citizenship, so I'm Italian and South African, okay. Uh, okay. which is nice. It means that I can travel without needing to stress about visas and passports and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I've traveled extensively. Uh, I was quite fortunate in like having European family. You, it's cheaper to go there because you can just like crash with family and whatever. (laughs) But uh, I was quite privileged that they, we went on holidays overseas and that sort of thing. I've been around, I've seen other places. I know where I can live if I want to go down that road. But my wife and I love South Africa. We enjoy living here. We're, We're in such a nascent space with cryptocurrencies and there's so much potential. And I want to try and groom some of that potential and grow it in South Africa rather than, you know, heading off to like the Bay Area and trying to grow stuff there. Heard it was a beautiful place. However, I heard that there's some places you just don't want to go there either. Yeah. So, so I mean, look, South Africa is one of those places where like everywhere, everywhere is compromised, right? right. You know, you go to one place and then it's like, oh, I love living here. It's great. But I have to worry about earthquakes and hurricanes. And you go to another place and you've got to worry about terrorism. Right. And in South Africa, right. there's, you know, like a risk of like civil unrest and petty crime is kind of a big deal. And there are places that you don't go, sure. But I mean, like, it's like that everywhere, right? You know, there are places that you don't go in the States, there are places you don't go in Europe. Having grown up here and having been exposed to that, I definitely get a sense of you you build a bit of a a street smart sort of edge, you know, where you're a little bit more aware of your surroundings than I think most people are, or definitely people that grew up in a small town where they never locked their doors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you park your car and you don't leave your laptop on the back seat. (laughs) Like, I mean, this is this is stuff that South Africans just naturally do. Right. And then foreign, foreigners sometimes come and they like park their car in the street, their rental car in the street, and they leave like their whatever, $6,000 camera on the back seat. And then they're surprised when they come back and the window smashed. But I mean, like, that's not that's not exclusively a South African thing. Um, it happens elsewhere. It's just that we're ahead of the curve in, in terms of realizing <laughs> Right on. Hey, when you see people like Trevor Noah in the States just blowing it up, you know, on the Daily Show and shit, you like, like, yeah, that's my, that's South Africa right there. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, when, when Elon Musk announces something new, when Trevor's on a cool show or hosting something or whatever, then you're like, yes, my man. Right. (laughs) You sort of gravitate, you identify with them. Even if they haven't lived in South Africa for ages, you're still like, they're South African. You know, they're they're not going to change that. Right, man. I I just watched Trevor Noah's Zuma impressions the other day and his stand up, man. They're just hilarious. hilarious. Yeah, he's very good. (laughs) Anyway, going back into crypto a little bit. Um, Thanks for giving us a little history of of who Mr. Pony is. But what about Monero? What everybody knows the story, and I don't want to bore people with it. But in a nutshell, where did Monero come from? And we know about the first original developer or the creator of Monero. He was, I think, in your own words, said he's a, he was a bit of a dictator. And then you guys forked away from him or took over the project, or the community just said we don't want this guy anymore. Can you just tell us just briefly about that, how it is, and how and where it came to now, and how you're involved in how you became to be so known in the industry and in for Monero. You are like the brand of Monero. Sure. So I guess like to put a little bit of uh, context into it, Monero was, uh, or the, the cryptography in Monero was created by a guy called um, Nicholas von Saberhagen, not his real name. And then it was in, originally part of this implementation that was primarily written by a guy called Antonio Juarez, also not his real name. So it's just like a, a bunch of pseudonyms. And then um, Monero was released originally as BitMonero by a guy called Thankful for Today. And Thankful for Today, you know, became like at the beginning was fine. And he was like, oh, cool. You know, this is the project leader. And within a few weeks, he just started being like really douchey and uh, and sort of insisting on doing things his way. And even when the community and miners voted against a certain path, he was quite insistent that it, this was the path that, that we were going to take. And that was the point at which we realized we needed to fork away from him. So myself and six others forked the project away from him. And we just changed the name from BitMonero to Monero to distinguish his implementation and ours. And for a while, the two implementations ran in parallel. I, I know of at least one mining pool that for like six months ran his implementation. Uh, you know, and it's still connected to the network and had no problem broadcasting transactions. Eventually, it uh, you know the compatibility stopped. He stopped updating it and just stopped being able to sync to the network. It 
you know, it still used, had the blockchain in memory and all that. And, and you attribute that just to because the, everybody just didn't like working with the guy or or the girl or whoever it was. Um, yeah, look, I, I think there's a there's this weird line, you know, if you if you create a cryptocurrency and and this is really like he genuinely created it in many ways, because as far as anyone can tell, he was part of that group that wrote the original code. Right. Mm -hmm. So so mm -hmm. we can call him the creator in, in a very real sense. He didn't just fork something from Bitcoin. He was part of this group that wrote an, a brand new cryptocurrency from scratch. Like if you're in that position, then you obviously want to have some sort of control, right? The problem is that there is a fine line between, especially when the network is live, there's a fine line between I'm a benevolent dictator and I'm just a dictator. Mm -hmm. And he crossed that line. And the lesson for us today and the lesson that I took away from it is we are in a position of, of relative authority. And when I say we, I mean myself, the other members of the core team, mm -hmm. the, the developers that work on Monero, the, the ones who do a lot of the, the, the coding are very visible. People like Monero Moo, people like um, Howard Chu, VT Nerd, a bunch of others, staff who, you know, people that, that have contributed greatly to Monero and a bunch more that I'm, I'm forgetting. Every one of us is in a position of authority, but that authority is relative. It's granted by the community. The community says, okay, we'll allow you to be there. Right. And that authority can be taken away in a heartbeat, just like we took it away from Thankful for today. Right. And that's interesting because it's not like a tenure. You don't have a four year, a four year voted in or a six year or whatever. It's like tomorrow you, they don't want you, you're, you're done. Yeah, absolutely. So now that we know a little bit about you, a little bit about Monero's history, now we have Monero being privacy and we hear privacy a lot. And first let's talk about what is privacy? Because I don't think that a lot of people know what that means. What is privacy? What's the definition, sir? Like when we talk about privacy, a lot of things that we need to consider or the main thing we need to consider is what what is our threat model, right? So in other words, what are we trying to defend against when we mm. say that we want yeah. privacy? I'm a big believer in privacy as a basic human right. But what does that mean? Mm -hmm. You know, does it mean that I that I'm a believer in people must be must have the right to be criminals or they must have the right to do whatever they want just because their all their stuff must be kept private? Obviously not. You know, the privacy is very a very nuanced discussion. And it's not a like black and white thing like, oh, everyone must be granted privacy. The threat model that I look at, especially when it comes to transactional privacy, the things that concern me are things like targeted advertising. As an example of that, there was a period where people thought that Facebook was listening into their conversations through Messenger, right? Not, not their written conversations. I mean, they thought Facebook was listening into their audio. Right. The microphone's right. on, Facebook's listening to what I'm saying because when I talk about babies, suddenly I'm seeing adverts for diapers. And what was actually happening is Facebook has just collected so much data. They have the ability to take a look at the pictures you upload and actually analyze them and go, oh, look at these pictures. There's a baby bump that's, that's coming. So they're able to analyze things like that and their algorithms are able to perceive changes in your life and serve you adverts accordingly. There was a whole study where Facebook's algorithms and, and their, their ability to take changes is so powerful that they can, without you having to specify it, they can figure out your sexual preference, they can figure out your political preference, they can figure out all sorts of stuff without you ever making a statement about it. There's all sorts of implied stuff that happens when, we're, when we lack privacy. There's all sorts of data leakage. You know, then you end up with these ta super targeted adverts. So we might not consider our basic spending habits particularly important, but consider again, if somebody had access to your basic spending habits and already they do, the bank has access to them. But if this was generally, generally wide, more widely available and someone saw that suddenly you were buying like, you know, whatever baby stuff, then they would start serving you ads. And quite honestly, that starts to become a little bit invasive. It's like, who cares what I'm buying? That's my stuff. I should buy, if I go to the store and buy a, a headache tablet, I shouldn't need to see like Alcoholics Anonymous adverts because there's, there's like some algorithm that's made an assumption. It's kind of frightening. It would be and, a correct assumption I, for me personally, honestly. But, uh. <laughs> but I think that there's that smorgasbord of data ends up leading to all sorts of stuff that we don't think we're bleeding. We don't realize we're leaking the metadata. We think, 
oh, this is completely fine to put all these pictures up on Facebook without realizing that Facebook's little, Facebook's several little algorithm is picking up some object in the background and making some assumption about it. And 99% of the time that assumption's correct. And the problem with it is, let's, let's go beyond the, the advertising stuff. The problem with it is, obviously you've got Facebook who really just cares about you being the product and figuring out like how to target you with ads. But what about criminals? Okay, criminals can also go like, oh, uh, Ricardo uploaded a picture on Twitter and in the background is his Lambo. And so now we know that he's got a Lambo and we can go knock him over the head and steal his Lambo. You got a Lambo? I don't know. No, I'm just I'm talking, talking about <laughs> I lost all my crypto in a terrible boating accident, remember? So at any rate, like the thing is like we can bleed metadata, not just to Facebook, but we can bleed it to criminals. And with crypto, which is a, effectively a bearer asset, you're just opening yourself up to a world of pain if you're either um, bragging about the amount of crypto you've got or maybe through no fault of your own, implying the amount of crypto that you've got. So let's define the threat. What is the threat in two sentences? So I think that the primary threat to our privacy is uh, not only from targeted things, so targeted criminals, targeted advertisers, that sort of thing, but I think it's also from passive surveillance. So, mm -hmm. you know, false positives and that sort of thing from state-grade attackers. We look at these people using observations to make assumptions, but that's kind of what people do in general. I mean, I could sit on the street and, you know, oh, oh that's what you do when you get old. You retire, you go sit on the street and watch people go walk back and forth carrying the garbage and their groceries and shit. Yeah. You go, oh, Mrs. Johnson every Wednesday goes and buys two gallons of milk, you know, and that's what they do. And you, you can assume things that they drink milk at home two gallons a week because she comes on Wednesdays. But these are just normal things that people do. What's the difference between people at the store, if you're a store owner, observing their customers or Facebook as a store owner, let's just say, observing their customers? So the difference is the level of scale that it's done at. The store owner does things at a very micro scale, and if he starts to become too nosy and starts to like, uh, you know, offer you baby advice or whatever, <laughs> you can just go to another store. <laughs> you know, you can go somewhere else and be faceless. And, and that's, you know, you have that freedom of choice. Whereas if you have all your information on the internet and, on, and Facebook's got access to all of it, then, Firstly, removing that information becomes nearly impossible. Right. You don't even know what's going on and, and, and who's analyzing your data. So as an example of that, we know uh, because of European law, PayPal has had to expose their data sharing agreements. So when you make a payment through PayPal in Europe, we don't even know about the states, but in Europe, that information goes to 600 companies. Okay, you make a payment and some of those data sharing agreements are for marketing, some of those data sharing agreements are for, for financial intelligence and all sorts of stuff. But you've got your data going out there and it is crazy. Like you've got no control over it. You know, I didn't know that. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. It goes to 600 companies just to, what, collect and sell your data, use it for, you don't know. The, this researcher that published this was a lady called Rebecca Rick. And she published this uh, visualization that actually shows you all of the companies that it goes to. And it really is it's ballistic and, and she breaks it up into different sections. So some of it, like I said, is data sharing for marketing purposes. And some of it's really interesting because it's legal compliance, which, you know, okay, cool. I, I kind of get. They share it for commercial partnerships, financial agreements, credit reference and fraud agencies, customer service outsourcing, auditing, operational services, group companies, marketing and public relations, commercial partners, legal and agencies. You know, your data just goes and it goes and it goes. And Can you spell her name? Uh, sure, it's Rebecca, R-E-B-E-C-C-A, and her surname is Rex, R-I-C-K-S. Excellent. Well, first, that's just crazy. So we touched on privacy. We touched on the scale of, of what privacy means. You know, it's more than just a dude at the store looking to see you buy your milk or the retired guys on the bench watching you go back and forth every Wednesday. Um, we have your data, your being, your life being broadcasted to a lot of people to do a lot of things that you don't know what they're even thinking or what they're even coming up with. So what does that mean for currency? And what does that mean for Monero? What is privacy and what concerns and what threats, as you mentioned before, is Monero looking at? Okay, cool. So, so Monero specifically deals with a couple of things. When it comes to financial privacy, privacy is very much a spectrum. And what I mean by that is, firstly, there are different aspects of financial privacy that Monero seeks to protect, but also because your data is permanently stored in a blockchain for all and sundry to look at, you have to assume that at some point, somebody is going to crack certain parts of the privacy. 
So the privacy is not like an absolute thing, just like security. Security is not a, not a state that you achieve and you go, well, my computer is secure and impervious against hacks. It's a constant battle. It's a constant cat and mouse game between researchers and state-grade attackers and whatever trying to break the privacy and then people on the other side trying to improve the privacy. So, so there's no absolutes. But <clears throat> the threat model that we've really focused on are things like criminals. Can a criminal figure out your bank balance or your Bitcoin balance or your Monero balance? These are things that are, are critical. And we need to assume that some criminals are going to be sophisticated and are going to have really powerful tools. And so how do we defend against that? Similarly, uh, how do we defend against censorship, transactional censorship? If you want to go and make a donation to WikiLeaks, that should be your prerogative. Whether I agree with WikiLeaks uh, from a political or, or ideological standpoint doesn't matter. It should be your right to make that donation. They're not a criminal organization. They might be borderline, but you know, like at the end of the day, it's your prerogative. And people shouldn't be able to determine that you made that, and you know, short of you bragging about it, but people shouldn't be able to determine that you made a donation. So it's not only censorship, it's also people determining that and then judging you based on that. Maybe your job is even threatened because of a donation that you've made to WikiLeaks. So I guess there's multiple threats that you're looking at here. And like you said, can they figure out what your balance is? And because your example was politically or for ideological point of views, we don't want you to know what I'm donating to, or what I'm buying or what have you. But are you also really concerned about the camera analogy? You know, if the or a $6,000 camera is in the backseat of my car, somebody could just break in and take my camera. Um, what are other aspects of privacy that you are worried that a bad actor might think about and get to because they know your balance or know how to access your transaction history? Sure. So, so yes, yeah, we're absolutely worried about all of that. The, the thing that we, that we often consider is like right now you've got companies like Chainalysis and what they provide is they provide these, uh, this analysis and these metrics on, you know, from the Bitcoin blockchain. So as an example, if you deposit Bitcoin onto Coinbase in order to sell it, then Chainalysis might say to Coinbase, because they've got, you know, there's a whole API that everything plugs together, and they might say to Coinbase, don't accept this deposit or freeze this deposit or whatever it is, because we suspect that this has come from drugs, from drug dealing. But now what's actually happened is, you know, some drug dealer has bought something from your online store, and you're now depositing the money into Coinbase in order to like cover your costs. But because there's like, you know, it's within two transactions or whatever, Chainalysis makes a certain bunch of assumptions, a certain set of assumptions. I'm dumbing it down. You know, obviously the, the software is a little more sophisticated than this and it doesn't always get caught out by such obvious things. But the reality is that you might end up getting, getting perceived as uh, being involved with things like money laundering, drug dealing, tax evasion, whatever. And meanwhile, you're an, an honest participant. And the worst part about this is that it can actually be done in a malicious way. So if somebody is involved in something illegal and they want to taint you, they might send money to you that they know is, has come from their illegitimate enterprise. And next minute, you're the one who's getting raided because you've received a Bitcoin deposit from them. This is all stuff that can happen. And it does happen because uh, we have, uh, for example, police in the Netherlands and in parts of Europe that are already using blockchain tracing technology and blockchain tracing systems in order to catch criminals. So, so this is something that is, that is obviously of serious concern. That's interesting. Okay, so Monero, privacy. And now we have all these other privacy coins. We know what privacy is now. We know the threats. We know what we're trying to do here with, with a privacy coin. But now you have all of these privacy coins and their mantra, their, their marketing is, we are more private. And some say we have our transactions IDs secured in cryptography and you don't or, or what have you. I'm not, I don't know if you do or you don't. I'm, I'm just saying this is what they say. How does Monero compare to these other privacy coins? Hey, guys, TiVo here to tell you about the Ufi Video Lock, a smart lock, a 2K camera and a doorbell all in one. That's right. Three in one for triple the security. It's easy to install. All you need is a Phillips screwdriver. No drilling required. It gives you keyless entry. So no more fumbling your keys when you have your hands full coming back from the grocery store. No more worry about the kids losing a house key. No more worry about a guest losing the house key or forgetting the passcode on your door. 
And for Airbnbers, it's a no-brainer as you can change the passcode at will between renters. It has available fingerprint recognition and it has AI self-learning chips. So the more you use it, the more accurate it's going to be. You will have no anxiety with the battery charging. It is a rechargeable battery and it lasts around four months, but don't worry when it's low, it'll give you plenty of weeks notice. And also it always comes with a physical key as a backup. There's no monthly fee, unlike other brands that charge you a monthly fee to get your backup recordings. They're always recorded locally and you will always have access. Customer support for the Eufy video lock is 24 seven. So you don't have to worry about any issues you have. And it comes with an 18 month warranty. What I love about this product is it is truly all-in-one with the three-in-one. You don't have to go out and buy multiple parts. It's all in this package with the Eufy Video Lock. So if you're interested in learning more, go on Amazon and search Eufy Video Lock. That's E-U-F-Y Video Lock or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock. Again, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock. Eufy Video Lock. Get complete control over your front door. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And why is there this idea of everybody can say that their coins are more private? Isn't privacy just privacy? I'm like, we're hidden. Done. <laughs> like I was saying earlier, I mean, privacy is a bit of a spectrum. As an example, let's take something, a technology like confidential transactions. And let's say the confidential transactions was added to, to Bitcoin tomorrow. Confidential transactions is one thing and one thing only. It hides the amounts of transactions. It doesn't disguise or hide or obscure who you're paying or where the payment is coming from. Now, if confidential transactions was added to Bitcoin, it would mean that all the blockchain tracing stuff still works, but no one can figure out the amounts that are being transacted. That alone would make targeted crime immensely difficult. You could figure out, for example, that I've made a withdrawal from Poloniex. That, that's something that a sophisticated criminal might be able to do in this hypothetical situation. But they wouldn't know how much I withdrew. So maybe I withdrew $2 million and maybe I withdrew $20. They have no way to tell. That's a level of privacy that would put a massive dent in the, the criminal risk, the targeted crime risk. But it would do absolutely nothing to change situations where, for example, we might uh, receive targeted advertising. It wouldn't do anything to change the taint situation and that sort of thing. Is more private good? So, so there's, I, I don't think so. And I'll tell you why. Maybe let's back it up for a second. And let's, let me just talk just very briefly about the privacy coin landscape. For the most cool. part, the privacy cool. coin landscape is garbage. We're not talking about cryptographers that have uh, released things or, uh, or that have published things. It's primarily pump and dump scammers. Explain, and, please. And, okay, cool. Like at the end of the day, we're in a weird situation right now where marketing matters. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you can make enough noise and have enough Twitter sock puppets and, you know, have a bunch of like BS articles written about you, then your coin will be perceived as being super private because anyone can make that claim. I can claim tomorrow that Waffle Coin is super private and I don't need to provide any justification or reasoning or rationale for that. I just need to beat that drum over and over again and say it is private, it is private, it is private. And as long as I have thousands of sock puppets on Twitter agreeing with me, people will eventually go, oh, it must be private. There's very little analysis as to whether they technically are private 
because people can't make that analysis. People don't have the ability to make, to drill down into the technicalities and understand right. whether, right. Uh, you know, the difference between, b- between something that is perfectly blinded and isn't, you know, they can't drill into the minutiae and the cryptography and understand when something is cryptographically negligible, when a risk is cryptographically negligible and when it isn't. You know, they, they don't understand passive data analysis and all sorts of stuff like this. You need people who are okay with the, these technical details to provide some level-headedness and some sort of opinion. And at the moment, that's not happening. At the moment, what we've got is technically competent people and hedge funds and crypto funds and that sort of thing who are disregarding 99.9% of the privacy coin space because they know that it's garbage. Hmm. And everyone else is just buying whatever they can because they don't know that it's garbage. You just said waffle coin. Is waffle coin a thing? No, it's not. It's just, a, it's, it's just an example that I oh. use. Oh, okay. Because I thought you were talking about chicken and waffle coin, the, the binary chain. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorites. To the moon. <laughs> And now a word from our sponsor, Blockchain Terminal. The Blockchain Terminal, developed by New York-based CG Blockchain Incorporated, is a new tool for the hedge fund industry and institutional investors to confidently buy, trade, and invest in crypto. The Blockchain Terminal bridges the gap between institutional investors and the cryptocurrency market. By combining market data from over 60 exchanges, information about upcoming ICOs, and news from publications and social media, the Blockchain Terminal gives you a complete picture of crypto trading. Institutional investors may hesitate to invest in cryptocurrency. However, CG Blockchain's unique Compliance Guard technology creates a compliance framework, placing you in a secured and monitored environment. The Blockchain Terminal offers you a consolidated order book showing the price and state of the market across multiple exchanges, and a consolidated wallet that allows single account to trade on multiple exchanges using third-party applications, including the Blockchain Terminal. This means you can access on the third-party applications thousands of available cryptocurrencies from over 60 exchanges. The blockchain terminal runs on a digital token to be issued by CG blockchain affiliate BCT Inc. This token is used to register and transact within the platform. The BCT Inc. token sale is available through the 30th of April 2018. Join BTC Inc. at tokensale.btc.io and visit the website btc.io for more information. Now, back to the show. I think you brought up a good point is, you know, the, the average consumer doesn't know about the technicals of it. This is the reason why Crypto 101 uh, is around is to get, you know, you guys on and do one-on-ones on your coins, on these ideas, on these on this tech, on this these philosophies, these ideologies. How do they know that Monero is better? Like even you're, if you're telling me now, how is Monero better than Sumo? So the best thing to do when it comes to analyzing this stuff is firstly, let's take a step back and let's look at a couple of things. The first is, does the coin have some sort of cryptographic premise? So not like, oh, you know, I've borrowed this technology from someone else, but has it actually created something of its own? All right. That, that already brings the entire landscape down. Because what are the privacy-focused coins that have invented anything of their own accord? Well, like it's really just what Zcash and Monero. I can't think of other of other privacy coins that have really put out cryptographic white papers that have been peer-reviewed, that have been in journals. I can only think of Monero and Zcash that have had papers that have been published in journals. Right. And this is this is very important because it means that academically you've got some sort of foundation. Mm-hmm. Now let's move beyond the academic foundation and let's say okay. You know, I'm not in a position to understand what a journal is and, and whether something's published in it or not. You know, I care more about does it work or whatever. So then we get into the space of, okay, what's the coin's foundation? Is it forked from Bitcoin or is it a brand new code base? I tend to think that a brand new code base is a sign of some level of innovation because forking from Bitcoin is deeply problematic. Yes, you get all the advantage of ecosystem and whatever, but it also means that changes you make need to be kept in sync with upstream, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I don't fundamentally have a problem with, with projects that fork from Bitcoin or fork from Monero or fork from whatever. It's just that a lot of them tend to do two things. The first is they never contribute anything back to upstream. They fork from Monero and then they never contribute to Monero. And the second thing is they all tend to beat this drum or make this claim that they are better than the thing that they forked from without any tangible reason as to why. 
Mm-hmm. And, and I think any coin that's doing that, any coin that says they're better than X, they fervently believe in that claim, better than the thing that they forked from, I mean, is deeply problematic because it means that, that they're, they're just trying to sort of rest on their laurels and, and build on the shoulders of giants instead of actually doing something that's innovative and interesting. So, so that, that again, you know, those two components, what is the origin of the code and where are they positioned cryptographically? Those two things already, quite honestly, knocks out 99% of the market. And from my perspective, the things that we're left with are Monero and Zcash. If they are Monero forks, like these forks that just happen, classic zero original, uh, sumo and what have you, because your, your, your codes are already peer reviewed. Are they as, as legit as you are then? Or is that not how it works? Well, no, no, it kind of is, right? Because let's, let, let me put it this way. Litecoin is a great example of this. Litecoin sticks so closely to Bitcoin and there are so few changes that they can keep in sync with upstream really easily. And the advantage there is that every time there are bug fixes and that sort of thing, they're just pulling in the code. So they automatically inherit bug fixes. So if there were a scenario where there was some sort of, there was a major problem, a major bug in Bitcoin, Mm -hmm. and it was silently patched before disclosure, as long as the Litecoin guys are pulling in that stuff with regularity, they would automatically get in that patch without needing to, to wait for disclosure. All the other coins wouldn't. So they would wait until disclosure and then they panic because now their coin's been vulnerable for six months and they're like, oh, what are we going to do? So, so all of the stuff becomes like, you know, if you're sticking closely to upstream, no problem, then yes, you are inheriting that. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to like go off on a tangent and do your own thing, it's going to become increasingly more difficult to stick to upstream. So I, on the one hand, yes, they do inherit all of the goodness that's in the code. On the other hand, they don't inherit any of the developers that built the code in the first place. And so maintenance becomes a problem. That's actually going to be my next question. We have this fork. Um, I hope you can touch a little bit on the ASIC resistance and your fork uh, from ASIC mining and why you did that, why you think it's bad. I assume you think it's bad because you forked. These are all assumptions. I'm just putting words straight in your mouth because that's what you know <laughs> good hosts are supposed to do. And talk about these other coins that came from the fork and what are they doing? Do they have the community? Do they have the developers? Do they have a base or are they just... A money grab. You know, there's two classics. I don't even know what that even means. Uh, zero and original. And they're branded to trick people, it seems, that they are the Monero. And at least that's what I would yeah. do if I was branding. It's like, oh, yeah, <laughs> a Monero classic. Oh, now I'm confused yeah. as, a, as a noob, as, as somebody at 101 trying to learn about the space. And I just gave my money to some other Monero project when it's not the right one. So I guess there's three, there's three questions here. ASIC, these other ones, the development teams, and how does an average person, a noob, 101, navigate the crazy Monero space now? Cool. So, so the first thing to understand about Monero is we have a network upgrade every six months. It's a hard, it's, it's a hard fork, right? Like this hard fork is not new. This is something that another one in our six months of hard forks. So this is just another one in our, in our six months of hard forks. Well, the real issue here is ASICs, right? So now why did, in this, this network upgrade, why did we add an anti-ASIC thing? It's because ASICs existed surreptitiously on our network, and ASICs represent, with Monero, a very real threat because they can be used for a denial-of-service attack. ASICs on Bitcoin can't be used for a denial-of-service attack because if you try the same attack, you'll end up saturating the bandwidth of a node before you're able to over to do, perform a denial-of-service attack that wipes it out from a memory or, or CPU perspective. So there was a, a very real, very le- legitimate threat mm. And, mm. and that we needed to combat. It wasn't us going, oh, we hate ASICs, you know, the, the community going, oh, ASICs are the worst. You know, it's not like this. It's not like a big, like, anti-ASIC um, movement. Um, yes, there are some people who, who are fervent about that. In the original CryptoNode white paper, it says that there's an egalitarian proof-of-work algorithm, which kind of lends itself towards being anti-ASIC. But the reality is that what we really want more than anything is egalitarianism. So in other words, entry into the mining space should be reasonably fair for everyone. Yes, you're, it's going to be dominated by people with lots of money and mining pool, uh, mining farms with lots of money. But as an individual miner, as a small miner, I should be able to enter that space without too much of a headache. So at the moment, if ASICs exist and they cost $12,000 or even $3,000, it becomes deeply problematic to enter that space. And this is over and above the denial of service attack. But if ASICs were commoditized, 
So, in, and when I say commoditized, what I mean, my definition of commoditization is they are so cheap and so accessible that they're giving them away in swag bags at conferences. Okay. You go to a conference and there's a like in your swag bag, there's a 32 gig USB flash drive and an ASIC. That's commoditization. <laughs> okay. We're not at that point with any ASIC right now, but if that exists in future, then the Monero community would absolutely consider switching to an ASIC an ASIC happy proof of work algorithm because everyone would have a thousand ASICs and it'd be like, ah, oh, yes, no problem. I can mine, not an issue. So we covered ASIC. What about the average person, you know, navigating the Monero space? You know, like I said, we hard fork every six months. This was our fifth hard fork, sixth hard fork, whatever it was, sixth, I think. You know, this is not, not new to us. Mm -hmm. And then you've got something like a Monero original their claims are going to stick with the previous chain because that's the original chain. And my argument to that is if you're going to claim that you're original or classic or anything like that, why not just step all the way back to the beginning to before the first hard fork? Because that's the original. Right. That's the classic. Right. So if you're not doing that, then clearly it's just a money grab because you're claiming to be original. You're claiming to be classic. And yet what you're actually representing is one hard fork offset. At the same time, I fully respect customers, or not customers, users rather, being given a choice. If you are a user and you think that the improvements we've made to the code base and to the, in the most recent network upgrade were bad, you should absolutely have a choice. Like from that perspective, I'm happy for these things to exist. But I think the reality is that it's going to be a sticky scenario and it's going to be a scenario where We've already seen there's zero developer support and there's almost no community support. The only people in, in the community that have uh, expressed any interest at all in it um, have been those that have already like bought ASIC miners mm -hmm. through their own mistake <laughs> and, and their own ignorance um, and be sock puppets because, you know, it's easy to create a Reddit account and claim that you love ASICs. That's really the only level of support you're seeing, and it's not even worth talking about. Do you have the same opinion about Coca-Cola when they took the Coca out of the Coke and then made Coca-Cola Classic with caffeine? Do you think that they should, the people that like the Coca-Cola Classic should go, just go back to the original? Well, I mean, you know, what is, what is original Coca-Cola, right? Original Coca-Cola still has, like, cocaine in it. So, you know, maybe we should go all the way back to, like, cocaine in I mean, no, it's... it's I'm for it. You know, <laughs> this is what I worry about is too many people would be for it. Like I'm happy, I'm happy for there to for a choice to exist. But you know, this is just based on my observation. No one, no one's adopting the other choice or the other side, and they're welcome to. But like, all the development is going to be on the on the thing that's called Monero, right. not the thing that's called Monero Waffle or Monero whatever. <laughs> so, what what is your what is your family, uh, your your mom and dad uh, think about the whole Monero fluffy pony thing? They think it's uh, they think it's nuts. But I mean, like, so do I. So yeah. in, in what way? Are in, they like, in what way? When they talk to you about it, if they do, what do you? What do they say? Look, we've had we've had long conversations into the night about it. So, you know, it's um, I don't know, Dad. What do you think? So hi, how are you? Hi, how you doing? And welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so this is a bit unscripted, eh? Oh, this is awesome. <laughs> I started in IT back when um, IBM started with their machines, and um, Ricardo, of course, was a natural. He's a real <laughs> propeller head, I must say. So it was actually quite easy for him to get into this. And I think it's very important. It's basically what the internet was in the sort of late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. At that stage, if you wanted to do email, I mean, it would take you half an hour before you could connect the modem. You know, everything happened around it. And I think crypto, and more specifically the blockchain, is going to be in the future the way in which people write applications and interact with each other that we can't even think of right now. So I'm very happy that a member of our family spearheading one of these coins that's awesome okay now i have more questions for you <laughs> <laughs> i'm sorry man you, you you did it to yourself i was talking to uh jameson lop the other day and he he his ideology and is different from his parents his parents are very conservative he's he's liberal uh some kind of uh, capital an anarchist or whatever so they definitely have you know a division in seeing eye to eye of things do you see eye to eye with your son's ideologies and are you no, proud yes. of that person that he's become in in the crypto space right yeah. now yeah, I mean, I, I'm very, I'm very happy that he's uh, that he's taken up a coin because I think that the coins that are going to be in the future are going, are going to be the coins that have a business reason to be to exist. These 1,000 plus coins, some of them will be there, some will not be there. But the top 10, maybe even the top five, might be the ones where there's a business case to exist 
And then that's where applications are going to run on. That's how things are going to happen. So I'm very excited that he that he's involved directly and knows exactly what's going on. I mean, obviously, the foundation had to come from somewhere. So, <laughs> Do you hold Monero? Um, I do. <laughs> Good. I, and and uh, I'd like to point out that he went and bought Monero himself. I didn't like give him Monero. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had to like walk him through buying Bitcoin and Monero. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> This is awesome. One final question. And I ask this, I'm going to ask this to both of you guys because you're both there. Like I said, Crypto 101 is for the beginners into the crypto space, you know, to get advice and to understand about these coins, these people, this, this, just this whole new technology. What would be your advice? And I'm going to ask dad and then son, dad first, what would be your advice to somebody getting into the space right now? If this was the first podcast they listened to, what would you tell them? I'd say to them that before they get involved, they, they need to understand a little bit about how, how it works. And because a lot, of, a lot of coins exist because someone decided they wanted to do it. So first of all, I think they've got to learn something, you know, like listening to your program, looking at some of the other things. They have to know a little bit about how blockchain works. From then on, I think they should touch their, you know, let their feet or their toes touch the water a little bit and hold on to it and say that these coins are going to exist because there's a business reason that they will exist. Mm -hmm. Not because everyone else says you need to buy it. And just hold on to it, don't, you know, you must be prepared to lose it a little bit. Um, I mean, it's obviously always going to be worth something. And that's what I would say. And yeah, I mean, from my perspective, I, I definitely, I agree that educate yourself. If you were buying stocks in a company, would you go buy stock in a company without knowing anything about that company? No, you'd surely at least familiarize yourself with their product offering and with their positioning in the market. So like at least go in like and, and understand how things work. And I think that part of it is also getting over the rational excitement because or rational exuberance. Because everyone at the beginning goes like, oh my word, everything must be decentralized. Everything must exist on the blockchain. And you have to you have to understand where it's advantageous to do so and where it's not. And maybe a, a clear example of this is Uber. A lot of people say, oh, Uber is going to be great when we do Uber on the blockchain. But what they forget is that a lot of what Uber does is not write a cool app that lets you call a taxi. Right. What Uber does is they go into a country and into a city and they go and speak to regulators and lobby for changes in regulation. When you have a decentralized Uber, who's going to lobby for regulation? Yes, you might find a technical, technically clever way to pay people to lobby for regulation, but it's extremely difficult. Uber as a company is incentivized from a profit perspective to go and lobby for regulation that helps their business. So decentralized Uber may not be beneficial at all. It might be, but it, it's the, the greater likelihood is all you're going to end up with are taxi drivers going and calling those decentralized Ubers and then beating the guys over the head, which they're doing already but at least you have a company that can step in and prevent that. Mm -hmm. It becomes deeply problematic when you have that irrational exuberance and want to decentralize everything. So take a step back, think carefully about what actually benefits from decentralization and from blockchainification. And then you're able to better analyze which of the, which of the currencies, like my dad said, have a business case to exist. Right on, right on. Well, I won't keep you guys anymore. Papa pony, fluff a po fluffy pony. <laughs> No, mine's always the arrow, arrow 007. So. Yeah, there we go. He's got his own, he's got his own nickname. What, what is it? Arrow 007. Arrow 007 and Fluffy Pony. Thank you yeah, very, yeah. very much for coming on Crypto 101. You guys have a great day. Cool. You Thanks, too. man. Ciao. All right, brother. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. Thank you, Ricardo, for coming on the show. And I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Fluffy Pony. And like always, ApogeeCrypto.com. That's A-P-O-G-E-E Crypto.com. The best place to check your prices. And on a personal note, being in the crypto blockchain space constantly, consistently, every day is interesting. Because we can feel the energy. We can feel what's going on. And this is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak for everybody here. Every podcaster, every YouTuber, everybody that's, writing blogs or engage in the space if you own a website if you're even an exchange or whatever you're whatever you're doing in the space you know when the candles are green and you feel it in your work you feel it in the community you feel it in your podcast your numbers and everything and everybody who's been holding maybe bought in december some of the all-time highs 
has been seeding a lot of blood. I hope that this green the past week or so has given you a little bit more hope, a little bit more energy, and you're going to go out there and be confident in crypto again. And everyone else who has been holding, and maybe bought last year, a couple years ago, maybe never seen any blood, you start pulling back and start disengaging. Well, this past week, we saw a lot of new engagement into the space. And I want to say that's very exciting. And it's really nice to see people coming back and caring about crypto. Sadly, it's the price that makes people start paying attention again. But it's like anything, you know, you can go even to the gym. I love going to the gym. In the mornings, I hit the gym. And you can go for two months, three months, four months, five months. But then every so often you get that urge to say, I need a couple weeks off, eat pizza, drink beer. This is what I got to do. And then after that, you just go back into it. And I think that's what crypto did. Hopefully that's what crypto did is everybody just had a little bit of beer, a little bit of pizza. And now we're going to go back and go hard. And like I said, it's interesting. You can feel it in your work. You can feel it in the community and you can feel it through crypto when people start caring, paying attention again. And if you want to know the news about crypto, go to whenmoon.co and you can keep up with the news there. We will see you in the next episode of Crypto 101. This is Matthew Aaron, and thank you for listening. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.